Hello, it's Wednesday the 24th of November. I'm Jim White, sitting in for Andrew Pearce, who is, even as we speak, working on his pecs. And this is The Andrew Pearce Show, coming direct from the Daily Mail newsroom. A new report suggests people with mild depression should be encouraged to undergo therapy rather than be prescribed antidepressants. We'll be finding out why. And as the Delta variant sweeps Europe, causing lockdowns across the continent, is Freedom Day proving to be the UK's secret weapon? Plus some bad news for holidaymakers. If you're planning to visit anywhere in the EU from next year, get ready to queue. Killing a police officer or 999 worker is to be punished with a mandatory life sentence, it was announced last night. The legal change is a major victory for Lissy, the widow of the hero PC Andrew Harper, who was killed responding to a burglary. Mr and Mrs Harper had been married only a month before his death and were yet to go on their honeymoon. Harper's Law will apply to any killer of an off-duty police officer, fireman, paramedic, prison officer or medics providing NHS care. Lizzie Harper was left bereft after the trio who caused her husband's death were charged with manslaughter and given sentences of 13 years. And she ran a 15-month campaign backed by the Police Federation for a change in sentencing guidelines. With me to discuss that change is Norman Brennan, uh, a former Metropolitan Police Officer and campaigner on issues of policing and law and order. Norman, thanks so much for joining us. From what I can tell, uh, the rules have changed from a whole life order to a mandatory life sentence. So how is that different? Well, being quite honest, I'm pretty confused about that because... um you know, at the end of the day, if you murder a police officer or you're convicted of murdering a police officer, uh, you face a full life tariff, which means that uh, you will never be released from prison. However, under the sentencing guidelines, what normally happens is when you're convicted of a murder is that you'll get life imprisonment and a judge will set a tariff. And the tariff is, for example, if you stab somebody to death and your tariff is 23 years, you will get a full life, you get a life sentence, but you serve a minimum of 23 years. Now, mandatory is something that has to be uh, a fact. And the fact is, if mandatory sentence is life imprisonment, that means that you are never released ever again. I'm personally a little confused because mandatory, the way the current system goes, is you're given an indeterminate period but with a possibility of release. I'm unsure whether now this means that you will never be released if convicted of a murder, but many people, sadly, in some cases where they've murdered somebody, convince a jury it wasn't murder, but it was manslaughter, which means that you don't get a mandatory sentence, or do you now? Well, this is the confusion. Uh, PC Harper's killers were found guilty of manslaughter. So that is the significant difference, is it, about the sentencing between manslaughter and murder? It it is. Um, Manslaughter is murder, but without intent, which is why it's downgraded from a non-life imprisonment to a certain period of time. For example, if you punch somebody in a nightclub or outside a nightclub, you may only punch them once, for example. If they then fall over, crack their head on the ground, and I've represented several families in this type of case, um, and they have a 
hemorrhage on the brain and die, that becomes manslaughter. That is normally two to five years. Well, in this particular case, these three young lads um, dragged one of our colleagues along the ground in the most horrific of circumstances. Um, but what the jury determined, it wasn't their intent to murder him. It was their intent to get away, and he got caught up in the loop. Well, we obviously had a different opinion within the policing of what the facts were, but the jury were convinced that that was the fact. Well, they were then given 13 years' imprisonment. Well, it doesn't mean that they necessarily will serve 13 years when it comes to manslaughter, because you normally only serve 50% of the time that you were sentenced. So I'm a little confused, and I just hope that if you murder a police officer, that it definitely will be a mandatory life imprisonment, which means a whole life tariff. But even now, I see that there are get-out clauses for judges to say in exceptional circumstances, it won't be a full life tariff. Well, of course, every QC representing a murder uh, suspect will be trying to convince the jury that it wasn't murder, it was manslaughter. And I'm also concerned that certain juries may be thinking, if we convict this individual of murder, they will never ever be released. So let's convict them of manslaughter. It's a little confusing, and uh, homicide is one of my expert subjects. <laughs> well, uh, and, and to add to that confusion, uh, Norman, um, Lizzie Harper has campaigned fiercely and determinedly, but this isn't going to make any difference to the killers of her husband, is it? I mean, presumably you can't act retrospectively and increase the sentence that they already have. Well, no, the Attorney General appealed on the terms of unduly lenient sentences, which is what all of us felt. Well, uh, the appeal judges stated that they didn't think it was unduly lenient because of the ages, uh, the circumstances and the convictions. So they upheld the conviction and they also upheld the sentence and didn't increase it. So these three individuals have uh, killed one of our colleagues. Many of us believe that they murdered uh, Andrew Harper, but the jury weren't convinced to that fact. So they won't be serving too many years' imprisonment. Um, one thing I'm really concerned about, and which I really wish had happened before this, although this is very important, is that tens of thousands of police officers are assaulted every year, some horrifically so. They're maimed, they're GBH. They have life-changing injuries, and I've seen recently, on at least two or three occasions, a police officer has been grievously bodily injured, which is a very serious crime, and an offender will walk out of court. Well, unless we send a deterrent out at the beginning where you assault a police officer, that you have to face uh, a very strict sentence, um, when you're not, it doesn't send out the right message. And I don't know what message this will send out to anybody because at this moment in time, we live in quite a belligerent society. There are a lot of people carrying knives. Children are stabbing each other to death um, with no fear of the consequences. And if a police officer turns up, and most police officers are unarmed, they don't think twice about stabbing a police officer. So what do we do with a 14, 15, 16-year-old that stabs a police officer to death? Do we send them to prison for the rest of their life, which will probably be 70 plus years? Many of us believe whoever murders a police officer, that should happen. 
but we live in a society where human rights and forgiveness sometimes overshadows the heinous crimes that people commit. So, uh, Norman, it sounds to me as you aren't convinced that this change will make police officers feel safer as they go about their duty. No, that is correct. Uh, I don't believe it will make them feel safer. What it will do is hopefully send a message out to anybody that carries a knife or a gun or murders a police officer in the execution of their duty and as Lizzie has included emergency other services very few if any have ever been murdered like a fire brigade paramedic or a doctor um, have ever been murdered so it primarily um, concerns me about police is that if it sends out the right message to anybody convicted that they will spend the rest of their life in prison it may not deter them but at least it will reassure the police service and hopefully send the right message out to some individuals that will think if I do this I will never walk the streets again if that's the message that can be sent out I think that's the best we can hope for at the moment Norman Brennan, many thanks. Uh, That was Norman Brennan there, campaigner on issues of policing and law and order. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with all our other podcasts and video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. The gathering lockdown across Europe proves we in the UK may well have been right after all when restrictions were ended here in the summer. Critics said it would turn Britain into a plague island. A letter published in The Lancet called it a dangerous and unethical experiment. But reopening in July may well prove to be a masterstroke. The pandemic is clearly not over, but... As restrictions return across the continent, it is becoming increasingly obvious that delaying Freedom Day would have made a winter lockdown more likely, not less. And while many countries are facing their first major wave of the Delta variant against a backdrop of waning immunity and cold weather, Britain built up a wall of resistance to Covid in the mild summer and autumn months, which has now been fortified by 12 million vaccine booster shots. With me to discuss the implications of Freedom Day is uh, Christopher Snowden, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the IEA. Um, Christopher, Freedom Day seemed at the time a mighty gamble. Did you think it was then? I kind of agreed with Neil Ferguson who said it was a slight gamble and uh, he was optimistic, fairly optimistic that it would pay off and because he was right he famously said that we would definitely be having 100,000 cases a day shortly after Freedom Day. We never really got past 50,000. We haven't got past 50,000 since. What we've had instead is, you know, relatively high rates, but not rising exponentially, sometimes going up, sometimes going down, relatively low rates of mortality and hospitalization. But we were getting it out of the way in summer and autumn, which was always a plan. And there seems to have been a collective amnesia about this. Chris Whitty, and others made it very clear that you you didn't want to be kicking the can down the road and having this exit wave in the winter, which unfortunately is now what most European countries seem to be experiencing. So why didn't they do the same in Europe? I mean, presumably we were led by scientific advice. Were they not getting similar input from scientists then? Well, one of the problems was that a lot of these countries didn't vaccinate as quickly as we did. I mean, we had to 
get very large numbers of people vaccinated in order to ensure that we weren't going to have an enormous ongoing wave of infections. Um, and of course, we were, the, we were the first to get vaccinating in the, in the first place. But yeah, I suspect also you had the equivalent of independence agents for these countries saying, this is terrible, we can't allow anybody to die from this, we must, must do whatever we can to contain it. The Netherlands, for example, did have a sort of freedom day and they immediately saw a spike, just as we did, around about the same time, time of the uh, European football championships. And the government there kind of panicked. And in fact, the Prime Minister apologised for opening up and he reintroduced uh, restrictions and now again they're seeing this uh, this big wave and we always knew from day one that we needed to protect the healthcare system from being overrun that's always been the number one objective and we also knew that the nhs in particular is always overwhelmed in winter anyway so it, it's you know, it was no secret what was going on people have been panicking for, for months of course there has been um, you know, a, a death toll to pay for that. But I don't think it's avoidable. I think we need to accept that probably everybody's going to get COVID-19 at least once in their lives. And let's get everybody vaccinated, get the boosters out there, which again, we've done really well compared to the rest of Europe. And if anything, that's probably made more difference even than the natural, uh, natural immunity that we've been building up since June. How much better off are we now in terms of hospitalisation? compared to our European neighbours. I mean, you said there that we've still got pretty high numbers getting infected, but are we seeing fewer go to hospital compared to them? Um, well, their waves are in, in quite an early stage, so it's a little bit early to, to say. But yes, basically, I mean, countries like Germany, they've overtaken us significantly already on COVID deaths and there will, there's bound to be more to come because there's a lag, of course, between getting infected and dying of COVID. And they've got slightly lower vaccination rates, much lower booster rates. Um, you know, our hospitalisation figures are actually looking pretty good. They've been fairly stable for months now. They've been going down in recent weeks, despite the fact that overall case numbers are going up. Um, and again, that's largely down to the, the booster jabs and the fact that the cases are going up mainly because of preschool children. You know, it's a kindergarten um, case-demic, whereas with the over 65s rates are going down. And uh, so I think we're actually in a really good place going into December now. The full force of winter, though, uh, Christopher, has yet to come. I mean, might we get in a bit too optimistic too early? Well, we don't know what's going to happen with flu. A lot of people were very concerned that, you know, we could have a really bad flu epidemic because people haven't built up any immunity for that for the last year or two. As far as I can understand, that hasn't been a problem as yet. And probably the remaining kind of um, caution amongst people uh, in this country and around the world has hindered that. But, yeah, it's possible we could get hit by really bad flu epidemic that would not be good we've got a massive backlog of patients to treat got record numbers of people waiting more than a year for their operation so doctors will be keen to do as many of those as possible so the nhs is bound to be busy either way but i don't think we're going to be looking at a situation anything like um last november let alone last january well let's hope you're right christopher uh, my thanks there to christopher snowden Visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or you can get hold of Andrew at Tory Boy Pierce. People in England with mild depression should first be offered behavioural therapy or group exercise instead of medication, according to new advice. Antidepressant use has increased substantially in recent years with an estimated one in seven people in England taking them. 
But advisors are calling on doctors to involve patients in conversations about what would suit them better and say group cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT, could be offered as a first treatment. CBT focuses on how thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, feelings and behaviour interacts, set goals and teaches better coping skills. To discuss this subject, I'm very, very pleased to welcome Natasha Bray, uh, who's a mum of two from Bridge End in Wales and works in the transformational industry uh, and and has personal um, interest in, in this subject. Uh, Natasha, you, you've been through therapy. Were you offered antidepressants? Was, is that the usual thing that happens when you seek advice? Yes. So I've had two incidences of um, depression in my life. One was postnatal depression and one was um, normal depression. And on both instances, I was offered antidepressants. So you were offered antidepressants. And, and, and what happened? Did, did it help? Did it, did it work for you? Um, I actually chose not to take them. So I chose not to follow that route and to look into alternative ways of addressing the depression. So what were the alternatives? So um, looking into different therapeutic approaches. Um, it was actually by chance that I was training in hypnotherapy at, at the time that I had postnatal depression and going through the experience of having hypnotherapy myself actually really helped relieve the symptoms that I was experiencing and was a key part in me getting back to normal. And is hypnotherapy often uh, offered to people who present to, say, their GP uh, with depression? It wasn't something that was offered to me, but I think that now um, there is a lot more openness to alternative therapies to help people with things like depression. I do know somebody who quite recently um, was actually referred to hypnotherapy by her doctor. And things like CBT, hypnotherapy, uh, group exercise and so on, do you have to pay for them or do they come as part of the NHS? There's always the opportunity to pay privately for things if you want to seek that out yourself. The problem, I guess, with NHS is, yes, they can refer you or recommend certain things, but there is very long waiting lists to access therapy through the NHS. And, and presumably you would hope that would change. I mean, is there any sort of uh, effort to change that and make them more available on the NHS? You would hope so, especially with the recent changes and, and the new guidelines that are suggesting that therapy is actually or should be the first point of call, really. But I think especially with you know the pandemic recently as well, a lot more people have mental health struggles right now. And I think there's going to be definitely the need for an increase in the amount of services available through the NHS to meet the, the rising cases of people struggling right now with mental health and depression. Natasha, as a final thought, you, you, as you say, there's been a huge increase in mental health issues wrapped around lockdown around the the pandemic and so on what would your advice be to somebody who is feeling depressed at the moment 
I think the key thing is to not go through it alone and try to talk to somebody about what you're feeling. Um, usually when you have depression, a lot of people try to hide it. They might feel ashamed of it. Um, it stops them actually seeking support from the people that they already have around them. So number one piece of advice would be to not go through it alone and to share how you're feeling with somebody else someone that you're close to or even your GP if that's the only person that you feel you can talk to. So at least people around you can start to support you and help you with putting something in place to to eventually, hopefully, come out of that depression. Natasha, thank you very much. That's great advice. Uh, that was Natasha Bray there. And now let's turn to the sports desk. And joining me now is Tim Nichols, Deputy Sports Editor of the Daily Mail. Uh, Tim, Manchester United won a game. Surely give it to Carrick. Uh, well, following the logic of giving it to Solskjaer three years ago, you, that you'd think that uh, United may have learned their lesson from that. But yeah, certainly a very good start for United interim to the interim manager. Um, talk uh, yesterday and today that the former Barcelona manager Ernesto Valverde is now in the frame to take over until the end of the season. But that was an important win for Manchester United last night and an important win for Michael Carrick, who's obviously stepped into the breach. Uh, not sure he really, uh, you know, had really uh, envisaged this happening when he joined the backroom staff under Jose Mourinho um, all those years ago. But he, he was in the hot seat and, and United delivered, uh, as I say, an important win. They have qualified for the knockout stage of the Champions League, which is so important uh, for every club, but particularly for Manchester United. And, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens from here. But uh, like I say, Carrick is the interim to the interim. They want to get a manager in until the end of the season when they're going to look to appoint a permanent manager. It, it seems all a bit uh, about face for a, for such a huge football club, but that's that's the situation that Manchester United find themselves in at the moment. Mind you, it's been a pretty good Champions League for all our clubs. I mean, Liverpool and Manchester City are already through there. They play tonight. United and Chelsea have joined them. Uh, do you, Chelsea are the current champions, of course. Do you think it's likely that a Premier League club will win Europe's top competition again? I think there's a very good chance. It's been pretty serene progress uh, through the group stage for, for all our clubs, really. And looking at the the bookmakers' odds that, that you know you've got City, Liverpool, Chelsea, and United are, are four of the six favourites. Really, it's only Bayern Munich and PSG, given the problems we know with Real Madrid and Barcelona, and 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 in it with the Italian clubs. It really looks like it will be one of those probably six clubs. Uh, Chelsea, obviously the reigning champions, they look very very strong. That was a he- really important, uh, impressive win against Juventus last night to win four nil. Uh, Liverpool, obviously a great Champions League pedigree. Klopp took them to two Champions League finals in a row and they look very, very good. They've got Porto this evening uh, and City, you know, they finally got to the final last year. They've got Pep Guardiola, one of the best managers in the world. What a squad they have. No weaknesses anywhere. Maybe this is their time. So I think we will see a Premier League club lifting lifting the Champions League trophy this uh, at the end of the season. But it could be any of them. They, they've all got, you know, you could make a case for, for all of them, even Manchester United, because if you've got a player like Cristiano Ronaldo, you can win any game of football. That is optimism. For, that is the definition of optimism, making Manchester United They possible. could do it, Jim. They could do it. You never know. <laughs> Liverpool 2005, Chelsea 2012. It can be done. 
Um, now, listen, Tim. Uh, England's England's preparations uh, for the Ashes down under were washed out uh, overnight. Uh, deliberate weather sneakery, I assume, I by the Aussies. But um, the Aussies, I mean, we, we the English cricket seems to be in constant turmoil. But the Aussies are going through a bit of a crisis themselves, aren't they? Well, they are. They, they, they had the situation last week where uh, Captain Tim Payne had to uh, step down for sending uh, some fairly explicit text messages to a cricket Tasmania employee. That was they were four years ago. There was an investigation where essentially he was allowed to carry on, but but the fact that they were about to come out into the public domain meant that Cricket Australia felt they had to act. Uh, he's still available to play, but they, they've got their own problems. Uh, with that situation and obviously you know we we don't really know what what's going to be happening in terms of the captaincy there yet but the fact is for all the problems around English cricket that we were are well documented and despite this issue with, with Tim Payne and the captaincy with Australia on paper the Australian team looks stronger than England at the moment particularly in their home conditions it's going to be a huge task for England to go down under and win an Ashes series and particularly uh, when the uh, warm-up matches are are rained off. That really doesn't help our cause. Uh, You know, you wouldn't expect too much rain in Brisbane uh, at this time of year, but there's there's been plenty rained off today. You know, we're looking to get people up to speed. Ben Stokes hasn't played any cricket since July, so this was a great opportunity for him in this warm-up match. But they've only played, what is it, 29 overs so far. They played that on the first day. Nothing nothing on day two, it's a problem because England need to acclimatise to the conditions, get people into a bit of form and, 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 uh, and ready for that first test uh, in, in, a, you know, in the next couple of weeks. Tim, you don't sound as optimistic about England cricket as you do about uh, English football in, in the Champions League, but thanks for joining us anyway. <laughs> no problem. British travellers heading to the European Union on holiday next year are likely to face sustained delays and disruption at the border because of new travel checks, peers have warned Priti Patel. A new entry-exit system, or EES, will keep track of all non-EU citizens when they enter and leave the Union using an automated process which will involve face scans and taking fingerprints. The European Travel Information and Authorisation Scheme E-T-I-A-S, I hope you're making note, will require non-EU citizens to apply p- for permission to travel ahead of time and will come at a cost of €7 Euros or £6. The peers say that under the EES system, travellers will be required to undergo border checks that are likely to cause sustained delays and disruption. Uh, with me to discuss the implications of all this is Lee Munn, leisure and business travel consultant with Travel Councillors. Lee, is this a one-off payment or will this ETIAS, I hope I've said that right, system require travellers from the UK to apply for permission every time they want to go into the EU? Um, the situation regarding uh, UK citizens um, and for all non-EU Schengen country citizens, um, when they make the application online for the ETIAS, um, it, the validity starts of, for the visa or the visa waiver, should I say, is for a three-year duration. So that entitles multiple entry during the course of a three-year period um, on a somewhat similar to the ESTA visa waiver service that uh, the uh, US 
uh, have in place that they are for a period of one year. So the ETIS that's uh, looking to come into uh, into effect from the end of 2022 to 2023 um, will be valid for a period of three years from the moment the uh, application has been accepted. And these biometric checks that are coming in, are those similar to how you get through the automated barriers at Heathrow, for instance? That's right. Yeah, so I'm sure many of many of your listeners um, would have gone through that process. If you have a biometric passport, often you, you have a choice of when you line up uh, of going to a uh, manned desk, or you can go through the uh, the machines where you stand on the correct footmarks, look at um, the uh, uh, camera, and then it will take a, a retinal scan. Um, of your eyes and also uh, you can do a fingerprint test as well. Um, it has been in place for a lot of um, EU nationals coming to the UK, certainly since um, the non-biometric ID cards have no longer been accepted um, from October uh, of this year. So it is exactly that. It is those machines that are familiar uh, to us all, uh, mainly at uh, the larger London Heathrow airports and London Gatwick. Uh, the peers uh, who have talked about this seem concerned that it's going to cause sustained delays and disruption. I mean, obviously, there'll be a little bit of disruption when it first starts. Do, do you see that? I mean, is this a, a, an area of bureaucracy that is basically going to slow us down? Um, I, I think there'll be a combination whether there are large queues um, upon entry uh, in, in to any of the European countries, that being the, the number of self-service machines and that there are available, um, and also the number of flights arriving at the same time. Um, there have been situations within the UK where flights have arrived often late in the evening, a, a large number of flights, and therefore there can be a, a build-up of queues um, to, to get get through such machines. Um, so I think it's a component part of both factors really um, nobody wants to be starting their holiday of course by queuing um, but equally um, we are somewhat understandable if it is for the, the greater good of security um, then um, I think uh, initially people will be willing to, to tolerate if they know that it is for at the end of the day our own safety. Uh, is this plan set in stone or, or are some measures still up for debate do you think? Well, the, the ETIS and also the um, EES, the Entry and Exit System, um, have been um, started and set up from 2016. So they've, they've had four years to put, um, put it into place. Um, and the EES is looking to commence around about May 2022. Um, so to answer your question, um, it, it's definitely here to stay. It will definitely be happening. Um, uh, certainly public awareness um, may need to be improved um, but equally if um, your, your listeners are booking with a reputable trusted travel um, professional then they will of course advise them um, of the uh, the situation that's in place and will also assist and advise when necessary so with it being a, another um, necessity to travel that being the PLF forms the testing on PCR tests and lateral flow tests. Of course, this is a, another um, situation where a trusted travel expert will be able to advise. Um, and it, it's definitely coming. It's definitely happening. Um, I'm sure the government will be communicating um, how the practicalities will work. Um, so it's something that the general public need to be aware of and, and certainly speak to their uh, local 
um, travel agents that will be able to assist them. What you were saying there about, you know, obviously the COVID restrictions um, and, 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 and all the online documentation that we need to fill in to travel at the moment. I mean, you're a travel consultant. Travel's not getting any more carefree, is it? No, it's not. It is, it's definitely not. Um, without a doubt, it can be a complicated process. It uh, has been a case of one, one step forward, two steps back. But it, it's definitely going in, in the right direction um, with the pent-up demand. Um, I, I would always uh, advise now more than ever um, to seek uh, assistance with somebody um, who professionally knows and keeps their kind of eyes on exactly what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis um, therefore we'll be able to assist and give the right information uh, at the right time so yeah d definitely looking to book your own uh, and coordinate your own travel arrangements um, independently will definitely have more challenges than it, than it ever has done previously. Oh, many thanks, Lee Mun. Good advice there. Uh, Lee is a travel consultant with Travel Counsellors. That's all we have time for for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. I'm Jim White, standing in for Andrew Pearce, and I'll be back tomorrow. Until then, have a great evening. Bye.